Hello and welcome to another episode of EMEGCAST. My name is Katie Tugis, a current third-year medical student at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, and your host for today's episode. As a disclaimer, given the current pandemic and social distancing guidelines, this podcast was recorded virtually via Zoom and may have differing audio quality than prior episodes. So in many ways, over the last year, coronavirus has really changed the way that emergency rooms operate. Physicians have had to expand their focus on classic emergencies like heart attacks and strokes to include a new, arguably very large emergency, COVID-19. And they had to do so in the setting of rapidly changing practice guidelines and a lot of public uncertainty. So today I sit down with one such doctor with whom I had the pleasure of working with prior to medical school, Dr. Tom Sugarman, who is an emergency medicine physician in the San Francisco Bay Area, who saw some of the first cases of coronavirus in the county and spent the first few months of 2020 dealing with COVID cases as they presented, before further expanding his focus on the virus by traveling to New York City to provide aid to hospitals that were overcrowded, under-resourced, and really overwhelmed by COVID patients. So welcome, Dr. Sugarman, and thank you so much for being willing to talk to me today about your experiences treating COVID patients, both in California and in New York. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I'm pleased to talk to you about it. It's a tough time, I think, for medical students. Um, a whole different world for all of us, but especially for medical students who are just entering the world of medicine. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a very different environment than I think I anticipated entering um, for clinical rotations. It's very hyper-focused on the identification of COVID patients um, and those rule-outs that we aren't allowed to see as medical students. Um, So it's been interesting trying to navigate that um, and in not being able to really interact with COVID patients myself. I'm very curious to hear your experiences treating COVID patients in both California and in New York. And really thinking back to early in the pandemic, what did it look like at your hospital? So, as you know, when we worked together, Katie, we were at a hospital in suburban San Francisco, about 40 miles east of the Bay Bridge. And interestingly, our hospital had one of the first, if not the first, community transmitted cases in the county. Okay. And so way back in March, you know, we knew it was coming. We'd heard about it. We were hearing stories from China, and then we started hearing stories from Washington, and then we started hearing stories from New York, and then suddenly it was here. And so, you know, we were learning a lot. Everybody was learning a lot. And emergency medicine in particular has a really active online education and good good communication. And so we were getting a lot of information from Italy, from China, and then from New York. So we were somewhat ready clinically, as ready as you could be with a brand new disease. And at the same time, we were all working feverishly to put in disaster plans and logistical plans to get ready for what we thought was going to be an oncoming onslaught of patients. Yeah, wow. It sounds like the hospital was very well very well prepared for an onslaught of cases. Um, and after that first case was identified, how did things progress in the emergency department? What did the patient load look like after that? So... You know, once the first case was identified, and remember, we had had suspicion that we had cases, but testing was really limited. Mm -hmm. So we had this super sick patient who was not initially identified as being COVID. And fortunately, nobody who was exposed to that patient ended up getting COVID from that particular patient. So at that point, um, like every other hospital, we ramped up 
uh, became much more vigilant about our PPE and were gearing up uh, for what we thought was going to be this onslaught of patients. What worked out really well in California is our governor and in particular the San Francisco Bay Area public health officials put a stay-at-home order in really, really early. So we were about a week or two ahead, if you look at like how the disease was increasing and when the quarter came in place than any place else in the country. And that really helped out in terms of preventing COVID from spreading around in the, in the East Bay. So we never saw uh, in the spring a huge onslaught of patients. We had a number of patients. Our ICUs got a little bit full, but it was always manageable. Okay. And I know we had talked briefly about your opportunity to go to New York and work in some of these hospitals that were more overrun, overcrowded with COVID patients. How did you come about the opportunity or make the decision to go to New York and aid the hospitals there? So after, almost as soon as California put in the stay-at-home order, emergency primary volumes plummeted. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly, um, we didn't have really any patients to see. We were cutting shifts. We were cutting doctor hours. We were cutting nurse hours. We were cutting scribe hours, cutting tech hours, everything, because there just were no patients. There was not work to be done. But at the same time, we were still standing by and waiting for the sudden onslaught of patients. And after about two or three weeks, it became clear that that wasn't going to happen in California, at least not initially. It wasn't going to turn into New York. It wasn't going to turn into Italy. And so we reached out um, through some of our contacts uh, to the government and through the California Medical Association saying, hey, where do people need help? You know, there were some areas in California that had some big numbers. And we started looking around for ways that we could help because that's what doctors want to do is they want to take care of patients. And especially emergency medicine doctors wanted to be involved and wanted to be helping to solve this problem. And so, I don't know, maybe around the middle of April, um, we got a phone call. Uh, through some intermediaries that the governor of California, Governor Newsom, had been in touch with Governor Cuomo from New York, and they wanted to send a team of doctors from California to help out um, New York, in particular the New York City Health and Hospital uh, System, which is the largest public health hospital system in the country. So that's how it came to pass. Um, I was involved in some of the early planning, got some of the early phone calls, and then um, by the time we got the initial phone call on a Wednesday, by Friday we'd worked out the details and we started opening it up for volunteers. And we had, I don't know, 60 or 80 volunteers between okay. Friday night and Saturday morning to go. Um, and I volunteered along with a lot of other people. And I think we volunteered for various reasons. I think partially because we were late on work and we're looking for some work, partially because we thought it was the right thing to do, partially because we really wanted help. That was probably the main reason we saw how desperate both the doctors the nurses and the patients were in New York, and we really felt like we could offer some help and assistance. So that's why we went. That's phenomenal that people were able to mobilize so quickly for a job, for a job like that. And thinking about the research you've done on New York and the situation there, when you arrived, how did it compare to what you might have expected? When you go on a relief job like this into a, a kind of a disaster situation, you have to kind of go with a very open mind. So we expected to be working hard. We expected there'd be a lot of really sick people, but we didn't exactly know what to expect. We didn't know what was going to be going on because everything was being thrown together. So that was an important component of it. And we, my group sent, I think our, our initial wave, we sent about 25 doctors uh, 
and they went to, I want to say, eight different facilities. And so they all had somewhat different experiences. In my particular case, I went to one of the hardest hit county hospitals in Queens, or public hospitals in Queens, not really a county hospital. And uh, myself and a couple of emergency doctors were assigned to a, a, uh, what used to be a step-down unit, which was now a full-on ICU. And it was different than any ICU I'd ever walked into. You you walked into the IC, to this ICU, which was kind of the traditional hospital halls, two beds per room. Um, but every single patient, 100% of the patients were vented. 100% of the patients had COVID. And although you couldn't tell right away, it only took a minute or two to figure it out, that almost all of them had multi-system organ failure. Oh, wow. And the rooms were cramped. The nurses were sitting out in the hall with their computer dragged out in the hall, monitoring devices on extension cords so they could watch the monitors from out in the hall. Not so much, well, partially so they wouldn't get exposed as much, but mm-hmm. also because there literally was no room. These rooms weren't designed to have, you know, a patient on a ventilator, maybe getting dialysis, who was on six to eight different drips at the same time. So it was a full-on ICU. And I'd never been in an ICU before where 100% of the patients had the exact same disease, all with multi-organ system failure, all intubated. And I venture to say, other than this experience, almost nobody's been in an ICU like that. That's not your traditional ICU. Wow, yeah, I certainly don't have much experience in ICUs, but the ones that I have been in have certainly not been anything like the one that you just described. That sounds like an incredibly difficult environment to be a physician in, to be a nurse, especially to be a patient uh, who's critically ill. And in, in thinking about being an emergency department physician who focuses on identifying a disease process, um, what was it like going from that mentality to an ICU mentality in an ICU setting where there's a lot of critical care involved and ongoing management? Well, even before we went, even before we knew we were going to go, many of us were already preparing that we were going to have to do more critical care. And so we've all been studying up on ventilator management kind of the longer term. We're all very experienced in emergency medicine, intubating somebody, doing initial ventilator studies. But we'd all been studying and reading and listening to podcasts about how to manage a ventilator a little bit longer, in particular, um, how to manage somebody who had COVID, which was a new thing and, and rapidly evolving. And then the hospital I was at did a really good job of doing team-based doctoring. So there were, um, I think they had a normal staff of maybe five critical care attendings, maybe seven or eight fellows. Some of the fellows were assigned to other hospitals, but of their critical care attendings, some of them weren't working. Um, some of them were sick. Some of them were older, at too much risk for COVID, um, various reasons, which I didn't really sort out. And so the remaining fellows and the attendings, they would really be the, the consultants for me, the emergency medicine doctor. And we would then be teamed up with a team of uh, a t- traditional teaching hospital internal medicine team, although sometimes they weren't all internists. They would have a pediatrician or an orthopedist um, on the team. So it was a lot of team-based care. There were had brought in a lot of nursing staff and also a lot of uh, physician assistants. So there was a lot of team-based care going on. And our role was really to uh, help be a critical care consultant. We could do procedures. We could do resuscitate people. We were, were really experienced in knowing who's sick, who's not sick. And then if the ventilator co- uh, management became too complicated, then we would reach out to the critical care doctors who would give us some guidance. Yeah, wow. Well, the ability 
as an emergency medicine doctor to transition into more of a critical care role is really phenomenal and I think it it speaks to the flexibility in training and really the the breadth of the specialty um, and as someone who is very interested in emergency medicine and acute care um, that's really great and I know that you had spoken about how the ICU was unlike any environment that you'd been in before and also the critical care um, required to treat those patients there was not necessarily something that was super familiar to you. And I'm curious if over the course of your career, you have seen anything, a situation, a disaster, a period of time that resembles this one of coronavirus in any way. No, this is definitely unique. Um, I mean, I've been involved in other disasters on, on a much smaller scale in terms of not as not nationwide, not an entire city, um, and they all have their individual unique aspects. Um, this was really sad because the patients were isolated from their families. People were dying. Um, they couldn't communicate with their families. There were no visitors. Um, the place I was at had a lot of people who didn't speak English, so there were some significant language barriers. Mm -hmm. And as you know, um, even using the translator iPads, you know that's pretty limited when you've got a ventilator going and another ventilator in the bed next door and a dialysis team, which I'll make this background noise. And then you've got somebody who's sedated. And so communicating was really challenging and it was really heartbreaking to watch what this was doing to families and to the patients. Yeah. And I can imagine it was also very impactful for those working on the unit. Um, and I'm also curious about how it affected your mental health, how it affected kind of the, overall morale of the teams that you were working with? I, I was incredibly impressed. I thought that by the time I got there, because we were there, I got there, I think, the third week of April, so it was about five weeks into the crisis in New York, and I thought the doctors and the nursing staff would just be completely burned out, and I found the most incredible, dedicated people who were all really happy and excited to be doing what they could do to make a difference and helping out their patients, and so I didn't really see the bad morale. I mean, definitely people were tired mm -hmm. and people were scared, but they weren't really kind of in that point of being burned out or um, they were just doing what they needed to do. And um, so that was really gratifying to see that. And from our point of view, we were only there for a couple of weeks and we okay. knew we weren't going to be there. Like we knew we had a start date and we had an end date. Mm -hmm. And so I think emotionally it was a lot easier for us um, because we knew it was somewhat temporary, but we also knew that we were helping. One of the really exciting things was, and we worked we worked pretty long hours, and I kind of heard about this, but I didn't really know about the 7 p.m. clapping in New York. Mm -hmm. And so, and our hours were 7 to 7. So generally, we weren't outside at 7 p.m. because you're either coming or going. But one day, I just happened to be, like, I happened to get out of the hospital, like, right on the dot of 7, and I'm walking down the street, and suddenly there's all this noise, banging, pots clapping. I'm like, What's going on? I had no idea. And so that was pretty gratifying. People in New York were really very happy uh, that people were there and they recognized what healthcare workers were doing. It was really a, a nice thing to be recognized and, and, and do that. And I think that really uplifted a lot of the, uh, the medical staff, doctors, nurses, techs. One night, actually a couple nights, there was a mariachi band that would come out and oh, just nice. impromptu play in front of the hospital. You see a bunch of the staff dancing, you know, right around that 7 p.m. shift. So people were trying to, you know, do what they could to keep their mental health and, you know, their emotions in check. 
Oh, I love to hear that. I guess I'm pleasantly surprised to hear that the morale was so elevated there. Um, and it's great hearing about the mariachi band and that you were able to experience the seven o'clock pots and pans. And I know in Portland here for a while, there was a couple months where at 7 p.m. people would clap. I had neighbors that would bang pots and pans. And yeah. it, it was it was really nice to see people showing appreciation for hospital workers who were really on the front lines dealing with the patients affected. And did you notice any any changes in morale or mental health in California as kind of the months have progressed? This has kind of dredged on, um, so to speak. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of stress for healthcare providers, you know, in terms of uh, the job is much harder. It's much harder to take care of people when you're doing PPE, when you're worried about that. Um, the political overtones where some people don't want to kind of do and take medical advice and you have to sort out whether that's just because they don't know or because there's some overlying political tone they have so that makes it more stressful. Of course, people are, are worried and scared about getting sick themselves or bringing it home to their families. I think that that fear has been mitigated a little bit as we've learned more and more about this disease. But nevertheless, there are, you know, I think a few hundred uh, doctors who've died from COVID, right. thousands who've been sick, a bunch in the ICU. Um, knock on wood, nobody that I work with locally, but there are a few nationwide who I know have lost their lives to, uh, to COVID. And so that's really uh, sad and scary. It is, yeah. And I know kind of the, the public sentiment surrounding the pandemic has been this ever-evolving thing. Um, and as guidelines have changed, as states have kind of opened and then shut down again and reopened, there's been growing resentment and frank refutation of these guidelines and the officials who have enacted them. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And also if you've gotten pushback from patients in the ED on these guidelines. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's very difficult because there's been such terrible messaging and inconsistent messaging, and that's really a failure of leadership on a national level. Um, and that's made it really contradictory. And that combined with the fact that this was a brand new disease. And so we were learning about it. And, you know, it's not it's not that you're wrong when you say X. And then three months later, there's new information that says, oh, you should do Y instead. That wasn't a mistake. That's just we've learned more about this. And that's really hard, I think, for lay people to understand. Um, even though they conceptually get it on a day-by-day -day basis, it's really hard to understand how different this disease was. And so I think the best example is early on the general consensus was we should intubate patients really early because it would be better for them and it would decrease transmission of the virus. And within just, I don't know, six or eight weeks, it became clear that was probably not the right answer. And, you know, now we're doing high flow nasal cannula, sometimes non-invasive, we're doing proning, you know, things like that to delay the intubation. But that change, you know, and even though that's very technical and very much in the weeds, um, that change sometimes is interpreted as, well, we were doing the wrong thing. Well, I don't think it was really wrong because people were doing what they thought was medically the best thing based upon the information that was available. Yeah. And so that combination of bad, of 
bad leadership along with a changing scene makes it very difficult for lay people to understand what's going on. And then a direct answer to the question, yes, I have seen patients in the emergency room um, who either don't get it or have some other political agenda or think that it's all a conspiracy. Fortunately, where I live, I don't see that much of the conspiracy theorists, but I see a little bit of that. And it's, it's always disturbing because you, you know, we're all seeing these people who are dying and getting really sick and to somehow think that people are making this up for, I'm not really sure what reason is, is disturbing. Yeah. It, it seems just from the experiences I've had in the, in the hospital as a, as a medical student and then in following the news and how things have kind of changed, uh, over the course of the year, there's just been so many misconceptions that people have had regarding the science around the virus, regarding the guidelines, um, as well as kind of the public health measures that have been strongly rec recommended and put into place. Um, and I'm wondering, in your opinion, what you think has been the largest misconception that the public has had? Well, I think that's, that's, that's a tough question. I, I think that the the dispute or the misunderstanding or the deliberate misinformation about wearing a mask has probably been the most problematic yeah. of it all. Um, you know, initially there was a real shortage of masks and we didn't totally understand how the virus was spread. And so there were some recommendations made, but really pretty much by, I want to say June, it was pretty clear that everybody should be wearing a mask all the time. And somehow that became a political issue and that people pretty much purposely did the wrong thing just to prove a point. And that has led to a lot of needless death and suffering. Um, I think there's a lot of questions about the vaccine. I'm really concerned about vaccine hesitancy. I had a conversation with a nurse just yesterday who was reluctant to get the vaccine. And, you know, so I try to go through the data and answer their questions, but it's going to take a lot of one-on-one -on -one time to explain to everybody that, uh, that there's nothing in life that's risk-free. But right now, the risk of catching and then having a bad outcome from COVID is, you know, a couple of orders of magnitude, 100,000, maybe maybe even 10,000 times higher than the risk of having a bad outcome from the vaccine. And so it's it's hard for a lot of us to understand, but we have to try to have that communication, that story with why people, and most people don't want to have the vaccine. Yeah. I think that's going to be the next thing. And then the other part of that is going to be making sure people continue social distancing and continue wearing masks, continue washing their hands once once the vaccine is out and about because the vaccine is not going to be a passport to I have no risk, right? This yeah. is all about risk mitigation. And until we have enough herd immunity that, that the disease just starts going away because it's not spreading, then you have to still use every tool you have to limit spread to yourself, to your family, to your friends, um, and to your patients if you're a healthcare provider. Yeah. Yeah, I think, it, at least from what I've seen, there's a lot of thinking that the vaccine is going to be this quick fix, um, an immediate cure, and that after someone is vaccinated, that life will just return to, quote-unquote, normal, whatever that is going to look like after this is kind of all said and done. And it seems like a very kind of dangerous thought process for people to have, especially given the case counts, the way that they're rising, um, and also people's hesitancy or deliberate unwillingness to abide by, by public health guidelines. And that's, 
that's scary. Um, and it seems like those are difficult conversations to have. Oh, they, they are. And, and they have to really be had kind of almost one-on-one. Right. Um, and so a lot of doctors, me, my colleagues, a lot of nurses are trying to explain to people, hey, this is why I did it. This is our understanding. This is where the information is. And you have to really listen to them. You know, what What is their reason for not getting the vaccine? And then you have to be able to try to answer that. And you can't really coerce them or shame them. You just have to give them the information, hope that they'll come around at some point or ask you the right questions. It's a lot about listening and then responding to what their particular concerns are. Yeah. Yeah. And with, I think a lot, a lot of people are also very eager for life to return to normal for things to look like they did a year ago. And it, it, it's very uncertain whether that will, whether that will happen, what that will look like. Um, and given the magnitude of this pandemic, I, I feel like there will be lots of lasting effects on kind of the, the United States, especially as a whole, but also on the healthcare system. Um, and I'm wondering if or what you feel the lasting effects will be on emergency medicine as a specialty um, and also the healthcare system moving forward. So big questions there. Katie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think like I think this was such an event of such huge magnitude that things are not going back, you know, to the pre-COVID way of life. Right. It's hard to know exactly what those changes are going to be. I mean, some of them are, I think, are fairly easy to predict. So, for example, uh, emergency medicine and other specialties have really moved into telehealth, mm. and I don't think that's going to change. I think there'll still there'll be a lot of ongoing telehealth. People are much more comfortable with that. People are doing Zoom things like this mm-hmm. all the time. So, I think you'll see that both in healthcare and non-healthcare, that you'll see a lot of telehealth. So, for example, at our hospital, we're running a project now doing um, post-emergency department follow-up via telehealth, something we've never done before. And we're doing it for a few reasons. We're doing it because patients who have COVID, we don't really want to bring them back to the emergency department because then they could expose others. Um, and patients don't have COVID, they could get exposed to others. Uh, we figured out that we can provide care safely online and then only bring back those who need to come back. And at the same time, they have trouble getting access to care anywhere else, especially those who have COVID, because it's almost impossible to get care in many areas of the country other than in the emergency department if you have COVID. Doctors' offices don't want to see you. Urgent cares don't want to see you. Clinics don't want to see you. And so all those people are going to the emergency department. Um, so we're doing that. So I think that I think those kind of trends will continue. There'll be a lot more telemedicine. Another um, some of my colleagues at a different hospital are doing um, kind of a virtual hospital where they're sending patients home maybe a day or two, admitted patients maybe a day or two earlier than they would have otherwise gone home. And then the doctor visits them via telehealth platform. And they may have to send out a nurse or a tech or a respiratory therapist, but the patient doesn't need to be in the hospital, which then increases the capacity of the hospital and then comes back to, to decreasing uh, the risk of the COVID spread. And at the same time, you know, patients would rather be at home by and large than be in the hospital. They want to be taken care of, but they're going to be more comfortable at home than in the hospital. And so I think a lot of that stuff will continue. I think you're going to see emergency medicine continue to be a specialty about providing acute care and emergency care and less about practicing in the emergency room. Mm. So you're going to see uh, more of a spread of emergency um, medicine, more emergency medicine expertise in the pre-hospital arena 
in the hospital, in maybe a freestanding emergency department, urgent cares, home-based care, telehealth care, things like that. Interesting. Well, um, kind of to close out, I wanted to ask one last question regarding kind of your time in New York, your experience with treating these patients in California as well. What has been your largest takeaway as a provider during this pandemic, and how has it changed your personal practice? Well, I mean, in terms of COVID, just our our knowledge and our ability to care for these patients has dramatically changed. And so without getting into the exact medical aspects of a particular disease, I think, you know, this was really the first time that we've had just an entire cadre, an entire emergency department of both COVID and non-COVID patients are in ICU where there are just no visitors. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, trying to help people facilitate communication and then allay fear became much more important. And we still have this problem that when we diagnose somebody with COVID, even if they're only mildly ill, they're generally really, really scared. Whereas, you know, traditionally, if somebody comes in with a broken finger, you have to tell them about the broken finger, what's going to happen with that, but they're not scared they're going to die of it. And so that's, that's changed um, kind of the approach and the need to really understand what people are, are worried about, what they're scared about, and either appropriately reassure them or appropriately caution them. Um, and then just watching how fast the knowledge the knowledge grew and at the same time making sure that you're relying upon reliable information because there's been all kinds of goofy stuff out there and you have to be really careful that you're getting legitimate you know, information. You can't really wait only for the double-blind placebo-controlled study, but you also can't act because... You know, there's a, there's a pseudo study of three people with something that makes no sense because almost all those things haven't worked. I'm thinking like, say, for example, hydroxychloroquine right. didn't really work and it didn't really make much sense to begin with. But on the other hand, things that sounded really promising, like convalescent serum hasn't really panned out, mm-hmm. although it may just be that, you know, we weren't choosing the right patients to give the serum and we weren't giving it to the right patients. So there's ongoing studies for that. Sure, sure. Yeah, if anything... The importance of valid data has really been showcased in this last year. But thank you so much for being willing to sit down and talk to me today, even if it was virtually. Um, And thank you for doing what you do um, always, but especially in this last year. Well, thanks. And I'm impressed with the medical student side. I think it's a tough time being a medical student. You're in a tough learning environment. And, you know, the priority hasn't really been educating the medical students since I'm getting through the pandemic. But you're seeing something that... You know, none of the people we're teaching have ever seen before, and hopefully you'll never see again. Yeah. But I think a lot of the lessons now will help you in your future careers. I hope so. It will definitely be an interesting thing to look back on once in practice. Yes. To have been in medical yeah. school during a worldwide pandemic. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to long-term changes in our society and yeah. in the healthcare system, as we discussed. Yeah. And you guys are going to really be at the forefront. It's going to be your generation that's going to put this together and help rebuild the healthcare system going forward because this rebuilding is going to take, it's not going to happen in a year or two. It's going to be 5, 10, 15 years until mm-hmm. it becomes, I think, fully rebuilt and robust enough to deal with a future disaster like this. Yeah, those are some pretty big challenges ahead of us. But thank you again so much. That was Dr. Tom Sugarman, an emergency medicine physician from the San Francisco Bay Area. We heard about his experiences treating COVID-19 in New York City as well as back home in California. As always, for the most up-to-date information and guidelines regarding the pandemic, please continue to refer to the CDC website and OHSU's O2 page. Thank you all so much for listening. Bye.